Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. A tragic earthquake in Turkey and Syria. People in Turkey and Syria and the region were awoken at around 4 a.m. by a 7.8 earthquake that sounded and felt, by all accounts, like a freight train moving through their homes and buildings. That's Abby Maxman, president and CEO of Oxfam America. More than 12,000 people are dead at 5.13 p.m. Eastern Time on the 8th of February, and the death toll is expected to rise. Maxman talked with us about some of the concerns they have moving forward. Well, our priority at Oxfam is to ensure that people affected have adequate humanitarian assistance as soon as possible. And we've got a second story to go along with this. At the time of this earthquake, a prison was impacted and ISIS fighters paid their way out of the prison. Really bad uh, news on this. Uh, Each of them paid between a thousand and ten thousand US dollars to be let out of the prison. Now, A, this is really concerning who is accepting this money from ISIS fighters in Syria. And B, how do inmates get 1,000 to 10,000 US dollars to pay anyone? We'll talk with Dr. Hans-Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project about that situation. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. It's happened again. A tragic earthquake in a region of the world where people could least afford for it to happen. It happened in northern Syria and southern Turkey. There are a lot of poor people who live there, And these are not just people who live in poverty, but many of them are refugees living in camps. And this is a whole new level of problem. So we spoke with Oxfam America's president and CEO, Abby Maxman, about the situation and what was going on on the ground. This was the very first day of this earthquake. Abby, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. This is another disaster the world is facing. And once again, Oxfam America is there. Um, and I want to, if you could, just uh, give us a sense of of what what the people in Turkey and Syria are facing today and uh, just kind of set the scene for what's happening. Thanks so much, JJ. Uh, people in Turkey and Syria and the region were awoken at around 4 a.m. this morning by a 7.8 
earthquake that sounded and felt by all accounts like a freight train moving through their homes and buildings. And already the death toll has risen well above 2000 and the uh, numbers are expected to rise. I have been in contact with our teams on the ground. Fortunately, they were all safe and accounted for, uh, but what we're seeing and, and hearing is panic, shock, and it's cold. Uh, at night, it's dropping below freezing, freezing 23 degrees in the region right now. And people are afraid to go back into buildings as they should be. There have been 60 aftershocks so far. Uh, and one of them, just a, a, a few hours ago, apparently was almost as strong as the original earthquake at 7.5 on the Richter scale. So all the focus now is on search and rescue. Uh, trained Oxfam staff are already part of that, while our teams are already also assessing needs because these 48 hours are so critical, not just the life-saving, but what happens next as people are out in the street, in the cold, food, clean water, blankets, uh, the basics. And that's where we are on the ground doing assessments. All right, so that was my next question. What is what is Oxfam doing? What what what's What's top of the list? What's the most important things for you to do right now? Well, our priority at Oxfam is to ensure that people affected have adequate humanitarian assistance as soon as possible. Uh, we need to prevent secondary disasters such as outbreaks of disease, which happen very quickly after a disaster like this. Safe water, critical sanitation, food, and just being covered from the elements. And we know that all countries affected by this terrible earthquake uh, and the survivors of it will need so much help in these immediate days, but the the that intermediate 48 hours, 72 hours, and then the weeks and months that that of recovery after, after the immediate media attention has has passed. And so for us, it's also important. It's vital that we're bringing attention uh, to this issue now. Anyone who wants to donate, uh, please do it now, even while we're assessing the needs, because that enables us to do uh, scale up our response as quickly and efficiently as possible. So in, in the process of doing these assessments, um, yes, there is quite a bit of danger still. So what what is it that your teams are doing to make sure that they can be safe so that they can continue their work? Because if they end up in a difficult situation and not able to help, then that compounds the problem. Oh, indeed. I mean, these these moments are so worrisome. We have trained Oxfam staff in search and rescue. Uh, fortunately, in, in Turkey, uh, as you know, Turkey has a history of of um, earthquakes such as these. Uh, but part of, to redress some of the issues you raised, we're part of a civil society and government coordinated effort. So we're working with our local partners under the official response uh, and mounting the response in, in country to make sure we minimize risk, you know, safety and security of our staff so that they can keep doing that work. And we know that first responders are the people themselves. And we work with more than 80 women's cooperatives in 10 Turkish provinces. And, you know, women are the first are taking care of their families, trying to make uh, keep everybody safe and then get access to the services that are needed. Abby, we've heard that there are thousands of buildings that have been collapsed and that there are uh, possibly people still inside them. Some of them, I've heard, have been trying to communicate with the outside through 
social media and other other forms of communications. Um, have you and your team heard about this? And, and, and what's the recommendation for people who may be in touch with those folks? Well, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, we're trying to coordinate as part of the global, you know, the national response. Things to be mindful of are gas explosions as well. I'm, I, it just, it pains me having led emergency responses myself. These critical moments, the suffering of, of families, children, it, it's horrific to think about. Um, the advice is to keep communication where you where they can. Um, I was uh, talking to somebody recently who uh, a family was being safe in their car, jammed into their car, not going into the buildings obviously are critical. And then the search and rescue of moving people out is fundamental because these aftershocks are continuing and they're incredibly strong. Um, so getting to safety, uh, but there's so much to navigate right now. Assessment concurrent with search and rescue and gas explosions, electricity and comms being locked out, hospitals damaged. It's a very treacherous time and period and everybody coordinating and keeping communication lines open is fundamental. Um, what is it that the average person here in the States or, or anywhere, well, anywhere else that hears or sees this, what is it that they can do to help in this situation? Oh, well, keeping attention on this, um, donating. Uh, in our case, you can go to OxfamAmerica.org. Donate early because that really gives us the ability to start to get and preposition what is needed for scaling up our response, um, other charities as well. Um, but the being aware of how critical these early moments are for people's lives and livelihoods and just that empathy, uh, we are all one. And thinking about others who need our support now is just key. And so we always look to and count on the generosity of the American people to help step up so that organizations like ours, working with our partners on the ground, can really be there uh, to help people during this critical time of saving lives, but then in what will be happening in the coming days and weeks and months to come. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that we should discuss before we end this? Oh, well, J.D., I mean, the working with local partners who are well positioned, we are very fortunate at, with the strength and, and decades of work in Turkey and in uh, Syria um, to uh, just be with in solidarity um, of how we can support the response. Uh, we know that in the case of Syria, it's a crisis within a crisis within a crisis. And um, it's easy to probably become numb to that. And this is the time where we can open our hearts um, and our minds to really step up and be supportive of organizations that are, are focusing on these you know, critical hours to complete our assessments and help us really scale up. So it's a, a note of thanks and also reminding us to, to be open. The news can be overwhelming right now. And I hope uh, that we can all open our hearts to our, our uh, common common good and common humanity. Abby Maxman is president and CEO of Oxfam America. If this tragedy wasn't bad enough by itself, we've learned from the Counter-Extremism Project, which monitors terrorists and other extremists around the world, that this earthquake led to a problem at a prison inside Syria. And the prisoners there were ISIS fighters. And these prisoners 
Escaped. I spoke with Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director at the Counter-Extremism Project, about this situation. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Joining us is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, and he's the senior director of the Counter-Extremism Project. Uh, Dr. Schindler, this horrific earthquake that's taken place in Turkey and Syria has enough tragedy and, and, and just problems that go along with it, but there's another potential for some tragedy and difficulty that's grown out of this, in addition to the thousands of people that have killed and all the misery that people are facing there, we understand that there were a number of ISIS fighters that escaped from a prison during this earthquake. Can you uh, catch us up on what happened? Yeah, so thank you, uh, JJ, for having me. Always really a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, yeah, and there are no good stories coming out of the situation in Turkey and Syria, and this is one very directly related, unfortunately, to the Islamic State and terrorism in the region. Um, during the earthquake, uh, which also affected a town in uh, northeast Syria called Rajo, um, a prison called the Black Prison, so nothing to do with black sites, it was just the name of the prison, is Black Prison. Um, there was a mutiny of the inmates, about 2,100 inmates in that prison, 1,300 of which are ISIS fighters, actually men who are in prison because they're fighters, not supporters, actual fighters. 20 of them escaped. Now, this sounds small compared to 2,100 inmates making a mutiny, but each of them, and this is the other really bad uh, news on this, uh, each of them paid between 1,000 and 10,000 US dollars to be let out of the prison. Now, A, this is really concerning who is accepting this money from ISIS fighters in Syria, and B, how do inmates get a thousand to ten thousand US dollars to pay anyone while they are in prison? Which really shows a couple of things that are really important here. Number one, you must not forget thousands of hardened ISIS fighters and thousands of women, some of them really culpable as well, right? Court cases in Germany of returning women have overwhelmingly showed that women are not just victims. Several of them were actually hardened ISIS supporters involved in slavery, involved in killings, uh, involved in the Hispa, the religious police. So these individuals are still in camps and in prisons inside Iraq, inside Syria. Apparently, this is not a situation that is very well maintained, as me, the UN, many people, the American government have pointed out for a number of years already. Now we have apparently already gotten to the point that ISIS prisoners have large amounts of cash that if the needs be, they can access. Um, plus we do have prison breaks fairly regularly in Syria now. We have uh, escapes from camps where the Kurdish forces hold prisoners. So this is a real time bomb that is ticking here in, in Syria. So this is very scary. Uh, and um, 
this is also something reminiscent of what you've told us many times in the past, and that is that the world seems to be turning away from the reality that terrorism is still there and it can rise up at any time. So these 20 with money to pay to get out of prison, and you know, there's that huge question about where that came from. Then there's the question about who gave it to them. You know, so take us a little bit further down the road on this story uh, so we can figure out, you know, the connection here. Yeah. So when the caliphate disintegrated under military pressure in 2019, um, in particular Kurdish forces, and I'm talking about the, the Syria situation, I'm not talking about the Iraq situation, it's a little bit more organized, but the Turkish forces inside Syria, a non-recognized force, neither by Syria, obviously, but also not by the international community, so they are not a government, not a state, took custody of a lot of Syrian, Iraqi, but also international, including European and Middle Eastern members of the Islamic State, fighters, supporters, uh, their wives, their children. Um, for since that time, really, um, many governments uh, have been asked uh, by the UN, by others, to repatriate their compatriots. Some countries, some in astonishingly Central Asian uh, countries, have repatriated everyone. Some have pre uh, repatriated parts of them, Tunisia. Um, some European countries, like Germany and France, have only repatriated women and children, and only the women if they had children, because they were by you know law required to bring the children home because they are underage and therefore not culpable. This leaves a large number of Syrian, Iraqi, and foreigners in the custody of the Kurdish forces, which cannot get international help because they're not a recognized government. And there is a very slow and not really efficient trip and uh, uh, trickle back of these fighters to their home countries, um, which means the Syrian forces are at their limits. There is talk about a Turkish invasion potentially across the border in Syria anytime soon for a couple of months already. There is now this earthquake, which will definitely stretch their resources. But these really dangerous individuals are still there. And we are expecting, with all of this going on, the Kurdish forces, forces to not only take care of the Syrian prisoners, for which you could make a case, but also for everyone else, right? So why are there still Germans? Why are there still Brits? Why are there still uh, uh, Irish there, right? Or Italians or French? This is an unsustainable situation. If these people come out, the reason why terrorism is not over in Syria is because the terrorists are still there. There's still enough weapons, there's still enough ability to train, there's still enough ammunition or explosive materials that the Islamic State could rematerialize. And yeah. the fact that these prisoners had this amount of money per head, so this is not one time, each one of them paid between yeah. 1000 to $10,000, so means there is ample resources there to restart the organization if you get the fights back. That's my, my, my next question. Did this money come from... ISIS? Did it come from the money that <clears throat> essentially ISIS disappeared with? Um, is that where you is that where you think that that's the working from? that's the working assumption, right? But on top of that, of course, Al Hol camp, which is the biggest uh, camp of that variant within the Turkish within the uh, Kurdish controlled areas, is now at least my 
Former colleagues at the Security Council call it now a somewhat of an administrative center, at least the part of the camp which only houses women and children, the part of the camp that houses international women and children, now seems to have become a somewhat of an administrative center that obviously receives money from friends, supporters and families in the West, sending it via Havala to the camp. And then the camp, the international part of the camp, apparently distributes some of that money, not only internally, but also to the outside to pay for exactly this kind of situations, i.e. bribe your way out of prison, bribe your way out of a out of a prison camp. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, senior director of the Counter Extremism Project, will keep an eye on this story for a few weeks now because it's going to be a while before things can return to normal, if that is ever the case in that region. And before we end today, there was some news from Ukraine. We're talking with Yuri Sack, an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. Um, Yuri, what can you tell us about uh, the situation in the war today, the 8th of February? Hello, JJ, and as always, uh, thank you for having me. Now, we are a couple of weeks away from a one-year anniversary of this large-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and uh, the situation at the moment is... Uh, uh, well, everybody is uh, now in anticipation of a possible new large-scale uh, attack offensive uh, for Russians because during the last six months, uh, they have not had, uh, as I've said even on your program so many times, they have not had any military success. So what they're doing right now is they are desperately trying to uh, gain at least some ground uh along the front lines so that they can present something some some achievements to their own people because you know their own people are dying and of course they like look today uh our general staff reported that there were uh during the last 24 hours there were over 900 russian soldiers killed the day before that over 1000 so these are staggering numbers you know russia has not been in a war where they would take so much losses for a very long time you know afghanistan uh chechen wars i mean none of those compare so this is why they have intensified their attacks in the east of ukraine and this is why we are prepared for for this new large scale offensive which could start from um from the Kharkiv direction, it could start uh, in the south, in the Zaporizhia region, because our intelligence uh, sees that Russians are building up their troops along these areas of the front line. So uh, the next couple of weeks definitely will be very, very important and decisive. And of course, what is happening right now around Bakhmut is World War One. It's trench war, street to street, house uh, to house fighting. Um, yeah, you know this. It's it's uh, it's very very intense. Yuri, I understand this is a somewhat difficult question, but I need to ask it because that's what we do. We ask the questions, and we don't we don't hide from the tough questions. There have been questions here and in other places about who's going to be leading uh, Ukraine's uh, forces. There there have been reports about possible changes in the leadership. And that's inevitable in any, you know, country in any, you know, wartime situation. But what can you say about what's going on there? Um, indeed, there have been reports, as you have seen, um, there have been some irregularities which have been identified 
within the uh, Ministry of Defense, and uh, the minister has responded swiftly. Uh, some of the people who, I mean, the, it, of course, the investigation is still ongoing and truth will be found. And uh, if, as a result of this investigation, uh, certain people will be found uh, of voluntarily breaking some rules, uh, of course, they will bear responsibility. Uh, at the same time, uh, we all understand that we are at war. Uh, we all understand that we are on the eve of a large-scale possible large-scale invasion again. And, uh, of course, we understand that, uh, you know, these decisions about the change of military leadership have to be very, very uh, carefully considered. And this is why, for the time being, uh, there will be no changes in the military leadership of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, we will have to see what happens next. But for now... But now the investigation is ongoing. We are, as a country, as a country, of course, we are committed to zero tolerance and not just in the military, but in every aspect of our life. And, you know, truth be told, uh, in the past, Ukraine did have certain issues with uh, anti-corruption measures. Uh, and this is a legacy that we have from, from long before. But little by little, step by step, we are putting in place mechanisms, institutions, and rules that will root out the corruption on every level, in every aspect of the yeah. uh, life of, you, of our country. Yeah. Yuri, I'm sure you remember <clears throat> back in the early days of this war, there were a lot of stories circulating about the ghost of Kiev. These, this famous yeah. pilot who um, shot down so many Russian aircraft, and a lot of people here in the States and other places said, oh, that's a myth. That's not true. But it was really remarkable today when President Zelensky presented the helmet of one of Ukraine's ace pilots to the UK official. How proud were you during that moment? Well, I was very proud because if you consider, you know, what the Ukrainian pilots have been able to achieve, given the, you know, given the fact that the platforms, the aircraft that they have to fly, they are inferior to those even that the enemy has. And, you know, I know personally a number of pilots, active duty pilots who are at the moment guarding the Ukrainian skies and helping the Ukrainian army protect our land. And I know that it's every every mission they go on is, is uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very high risk mission. And, and they go there in full knowledge of the fact that they will be risking literally their lives. But nothing stops them. And, of course, I was proud uh, when our president said today that, you know, our pilots have the freedom, but give them wings uh, to protect this freedom. And this is the key issue right now. You know, we already have managed to assemble the so-called tank coalition and hopefully the first tanks will be arriving in Ukraine very soon and more will come in the foreseeable future. So now the next stage in terms of equipping Ukraine sufficiently enough to be able to defend ourselves and the civilized world from this evil will be fighter jets. And um, we hope that the coalition of fighter jets is next. Yuri Sack, an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. That's it for this episode of Target USA. 
coming up in our next episode. I am aware that we've delayed several times this next story, promoting it on each of the two previous podcasts, but it's been overtaken by breaking news. But we're going to get to it. The secret, insidious way disinformation moves around social media. So what we have seen uh, is, especially on uh, social media, uh, some of those main narratives, anti-Ukraine narratives, anti-NATO narratives, anti-Western narratives. Urve Eslas is a disinformation expert in the Estonian government office Strategic Communications Department. She says the flames of disinformation on social media are being fanned. Especially in Russian language social media. So, how do they fight back? So, we try to build trust between uh, government institutions and NGOs, uh, media organization, and also between people. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.